Jesus, we love you and we thank you so much for the power in your name. Let's just say that name out loud. Jesus. Say it again. Jesus. Name above all names. The name that moves mountains. The name that heals diseases. The name that reconciles enemies. That reconciles us with our intended and glorious Father. We love you. We are more desperate than we realize tonight. But with all that we are, we worship you. We thank you. Your grace is amazing. We pray again as we open your word that you would emerge from the pages of scripture. You would capture our affections, our intellect, our will. You would be glorified to the end that we would be changed. We love you. Be honored tonight. Draw us tonight. Call us tonight. And hear in us a willing yes. We pray it in Christ's name. And everyone said, okay, give a few high fives before you sit down. High fives before you sit down. Thank you. So uh, one of the uh, experiences in our parenting that uh, is a happy, sad experience, we look forward to it, we dread it, is when we launch our kids in college. And our first experience, our daughter went to Azusa Pacific University, and uh, it was brutal. It was, uh, I was a mess saying goodbye to her. And I, like, snot, tears, the whole thing. And, um, and we drove away, and it was, it was just um, the most wonderful terrible experience putting my firstborn off, our firstborn. Our second one I thought would be easier. She went to Asbury University in Kentucky, and it wasn't. It was still so hard. The tears, everything. Our third daughter is very driven, and uh, she wanted to go to a big SEC school, so she applied to and got into the University of Georgia, and uh, go dogs. And um, off we went. I think that was Brian. Off we went. Uh, to UGA, and uh, we made the, the mistake of uh, saying goodbye to her and then traveling, Anne's from the South, so we traveled and visited family, and we're going to come back and see her one more time and then say goodbye again. Don't ever do that, okay? Just don't ever do that. Uh, and so there we were. Belle was there, too, and, and we're outside her dorm. The time came. You just had this lump. If you're a parent, you know it's in your throat. You're, you know, setting up the dorm room. You're doing this, but inside, you know it's coming. It's coming. And then how do you, there's nothing more to say. We'd said everything we wanted to say. She's an amazing girl, but it's like goodbye. And outside the dorm, I think it was like 10 o'clock at night, we're all crying and just bawling, saying goodbye. And then we go visit her family and, and, uh, and then come back again to do it all over again. She had a real hard time. She's a driven girl, but Elizabeth, uh, more than her sisters, had this innate, what we call homing device. She and Ann are connected. All my girls are connected with Ann, but she is so connected. And she would call us and say, I miss home. I miss home. And, and we were praying for her. We were praying with her. And we put a date out there in October. In October, just all you got to do is make it to October. And, and then we'll fly you home to visit us. So October 6th was a date that uh, we got the ticket. But inadvertently, Elizabeth told, was told it was October 5th 
that she would fly home. And my friends, this was the carrot before her to make it through the day to come home. So October 5th, the day early, she takes the hour-long ride from Athens to Atlanta and goes to check in at the airport, and her ticket won't go through. So she goes up to the gate and says, I'm sorry, I'm, I, something's wrong. I, I, my flight's in an hour. I can't get out. can't get the ticket processed. And they look at it and said, oh, you're flying out tomorrow. And she just starts crying. And they said, hang on, hang on. She goes, is there any way I can get home? Is there any way you can change it? She says, well, there'll be a change fee. And she's crying. And the agent's punching it through, and she finds a flight at 11 o'clock, but it's going to cost us $1,200. And the agent is too scared to tell her this, so she literally writes it on a piece of paper and slips it to her. And Elizabeth lost it. She's like, no way, I gotta get home. I gotta get home. We, we can't do this, I gotta get home. And she walks away, just making a complete mess, and she's that kid in the line that everyone's looking at and talking about, and she goes to get into another line hoping another agent will tell her something different. She didn't know it, but she was in the priority, this Delta Sky priority line that only that, you know, like the 100,000 mile or above flyers go in. And she's just, just crying and standing in the line. Then she looks up and sees Sky's priority. And now her tears go to a whole nother level. We're wailing, we're doing all that. And there's a man standing behind her. And he taps her on the shoulder and asks the question only a man can ask in a scene like that. Is everything okay? <laughs> and through her tears, she turns around, through her sobs, tells her story, and the man says, listen, just go talk to the agent. I'm going to go get into my flight. I'm sure you're going to get home okay. She's like, I don't know. They told me no, no. And then another man moved. Literally, he says, he was going to Florida. There was a tropical storm going to Florida. He goes, look, I'm going to Florida. A hurricane's going there. We're both having a bad day. And that didn't help Elizabeth at all anymore. <laughs> so she goes to the agent in the line, and the agent does the same thing. And the agent just tells her, hey, it's 1200 bucks, 11 o'clock tonight, if you want it. Otherwise, you're flying out tomorrow night. To when, at that point, the man walks over after getting his ticket and says, is there anything I can do to help? And she, the agent says, no, she needs to pay $1,200. He gets on the phone, calls his special priority one Delta line, talks to the agent on the Delta line, hands Elizabeth the phone right there in front of the ticketing agent, says, talk to this person. She needs your personal information. I'm safe. I don't want to know your personal information. Walks away. Elizabeth gives her personal information. And then the agent on the phone says, give the phone to the agent behind the counter, the agent behind the counter talks to the agent on the phone, punches in some numbers, and says, your flight leaves in a half hour. With a whole new set of tears, Elizabeth just turns to this man and says, you must have been sent from God. His reply was this, do you need money for food? She goes, I think I'm going to be okay. She went to Chick-fil-A, got her dinner, boarded her flight, and came home. I love rescue stories like that. I love glimpses in life 
that display the gospel, the good news, that talk about someone who was destined for a destination called home and couldn't get there on her own because of her mistake, actually our mistake, but someone at that point with the means steps in and says, I know you can't get where you want to get, but I'm here to remedy the situation. And you fly on my account right now. Friends, that's the gospel. That's the good news. And that's why Jesus came to earth. Not to better our lives. Not to just help us in our relationships or help us with our anger issues or help us with our lust problem. Jesus didn't come to help us with our greed. He came to rescue us. Because we were that lost. We were more desperate than we realized. And the God of heaven that we were created for, that we were just singing to, saw us broken in our sin, unable to get to the destination we were created for, and he couldn't stand it, so he unzipped heaven, stepped into time in a form we could relate to. And like the man in the line with my daughter said, let me get you there. That's what these face-to-face encounters are all about, and that's what the good news is. I want you to turn to John chapter 3 and look at another face-to-face encounter. And this encounter is unlike the ones we've seen previously. In the previous encounters, we've dealt with people really on the margins of society, a leper, uh, a woman who in the Roman Empire would be on the margin of a society. It was a very paternalistic, patriarchal culture. But now we're going to look at Jesus interacting with someone in the core of society, someone who had made it, someone who was an elite in his day. And let's see that face-to-face encounter. What we're going to see is that face-to-face encounter ended up so transformational that uh, this person played a pivotal role in the resurrection, in what we celebrate on Easter. I'll put it that way. Pivotal role. See, apart from this person, uh, crucifixion happened all the time in the Roman Empire. It It was a deterrent for the Roman Empire. And they would take someone as close to the point of death and leave them there as long as possible, publicly. And then when he died, they would let his body rot on the tree till they saw fit to take it off. And when you were taken off, you were, you were completely dehumanized and you lost all rights. They would literally put the body in a cart and throw it in this valley south of the city of Jerusalem called Gehenna. It's a city park today. But in that day, it was the garbage dump where the fire never went out, infested with feral dogs and rats and other things. And regularly, the Roman centurions and Roman officials would take the body of the crucified and just throw them in the garbage dump. But because of this encounter, we celebrate history's greatest event because we can point to a real place that people really went to and said, that tomb is empty. It's an amazing story. Let's pick it up in John chapter 3. John chapter 3. This is early in the ministry of Jesus. Many of us have heard this story before, but let's read it as if we're reading it for the first time. See, in Jesus' days in uh, Jerusalem, there's a group of people called the Pharisees. Pharisees were religious leaders and most outwardly holy people on the planet in Israel. 
Their job was to be good, try to be perfect. That was their job. They were the most holy people on the planet. If you would ask a Pharisee, what do you do? He'd say, well, I do good. I do perfection. That's my job. And these Pharisees hated Jesus. They hated him for what he taught. They hated him because he wouldn't keep their rules. They hated him because he loved people that they didn't like. They hated him because the people loved him back and questioned the religious system they were in. But there was this tiny little rebel group, maybe rebel group, tiny, we don't know how big, but within the Pharisees that thought, hmm, could it be? Could this be Messiah? Could he be from God? And they would talk up amongst themselves and hope that no one would hear those conversations. One of them was named Nicodemus. Now, I don't know if they drew straws or if Nicodemus was outside the circle and went to the bathroom and they said, let's have Nicodemus do it. But somehow Nicodemus got the card to go talk to Jesus on behalf of a larger group. I'll build that out when we get into the text. And specifically, there was one question that he wanted answered, that they wanted answered. And friends, if I can have your attention, it is the question of questions. It is the question that dogs you and me our whole life and everyone with the eyes on it. If you got deep, 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 deep down inside, beneath the layers, that question would be there. We'll see it in a minute. Let's pick it up in verse Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. There's 6,000 Pharisees in Israel in that day. 70 of the 6,000 were elected to this council. So not only was he the elect of 6,000, he was one of the 70 of the 6,000. Look down in verse 10 with me. It's not going to be on the screen. I'm sorry, you need your Bibles, okay? John chapter 3, verse 10. Look what it says in verse 10. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and, and it's lost a little bit in translation, but Jesus has a definitive there. You are the teacher of Israel. So there's 6,000 Pharisees. There's 70 in this ruling council, and then there's the teacher of the 70. He is the man when it comes to religion. He comes to Jesus at night and says, Rabbi, look at the next word. Look at the pronoun. What is it? This is an open book test. We, nice. In other words, I'm not here representing me. I'm here representing a we. I am a representative of a larger group. And I was going to the bathroom, and they put me up to this. So I just want you to know, playing my cards, I'm not talking me to you. This is a we question. We know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Very sincere. And then there's a pregnant pause, I believe, because he's about to ask the question. Maybe he's breathed in. The question of questions. And just as he's about to ask the question, Jesus does that thing he does in the Gospels. He answers the question before it's asked. Can I just say, if anyone answers your question before you even ask it, pay attention to that person, okay? Look at verse 3. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, 
I would circle these next two words because this is actually what put Jesus on the cross. He was so uh, definitive. No one, no one. Remember, he's only talking to the 6,000 elite or the 70 of the 6,000. He's talking to the one, the teacher of the 70 of the 6,000. The guy who's good, morally better than most anyone in Israel. And Jesus says, not even you. Brian hit on this so well the other morning. Not even you in all your goodness are good enough. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And Jesus answers the question the Pharisees want to know. And I bet if we're honest and safe with each other, we'd want to know it too. Essentially, the question is this. How do I know me and God are good? I'm not even living up to my own moral code, let alone God's. How can I know I can be in a relationship with God? How can I know when I pray, he's not just this impersonal force, but I hear people talking about this personal relationship. How do you have one of those? How do I have a purpose in life? How can I know I'm forgiven? On my death's door, even though I'm scared to death of death, how can I not be scared of what happens the second after death? How do I know that's taken care of? That's the question of questions. In all my goodness, that's still, Nicodemus in essence is saying, that still hasn't been answered. And Jesus says, no one, no one can have a right relationship with me, enter the kingdom of God, a, a spiritual sphere of relationship, unless you're born again. That's the only way. Now, I know we're here on the peninsula, and some of you right now are checking your watch and looking at the date and going, is it really 2019 and the preacher's talking about born again? Are we really living in 2019 and I'm hearing this come out of Mount Hermon? <laughs> That's crazy. When I ask the question, let me ask the question. When you think of born again, and this is rhetorical, what kind of person, what's the demographic of the person who comes to mind? Born again, Christian. Just think about that. Born again, Christian. I actually polled people I know, and what came to mind, were the number one answers that came to mind on the northern end of the Silicon Valley on the peninsula where I live, people who are highly emotional, low educated, and they need a lot of moral structure in their life. That is a born-again person. Listen, none of that defines Nicodemus. Nicodemus was highly educated. Nicodemus was incredibly cerebral. Nicodemus in Israel had it going on, and to this type of person, Jesus says to him, the successful, educated moral person, you must be born again. Maybe our culture is co-opted or the church has ruined, probably a combination of the two, that definition, and we need to recapture it tonight. In other words, he's saying, Nicodemus, as good as you are, none of it counts when it comes to you and God. 
as good as you are, none of it counts when it comes to you and God. You need a new start. You need a new operating system within you. I didn't come to be a moral vitamin in your life to give a little God boost to your already good life. I am telling you, you need to start over and be born again. So Nicodemus goes literal. Look at verse four. He doesn't get it, and that's okay. Jesus is safe enough for you not to get it and to keep questioning him. How could someone be born again when they're old, Nicodemus says. Surely they can't enter the second time into a mother's womb to be born. Wouldn't you love to see Nicodemus' expression when Jesus said born again? I mean, it's like eating a pickle or a lemon. Like, wait, I don't get this. Jesus continues in verse 5. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water in the spirit. In other words, uh, there are things that create a physical birth. There's things that create a spiritual birth, like the spirit of God. Flesh gives birth to flesh. You know, dogs have dogs. Cats have cats. People have people. Flesh gives birth to gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. In other words, Nicodemus, we're talking about you are body, mind, and spirit, and you need the Holy Spirit to reignite and start something new in you. This is important because Nicodemus, even though he's a Pharisee, he probably said, hey, I know I'm not perfect, but Jesus, I'm not coming for a new start to you. I'm coming for a supplement to my religious life. I'm actually dependent a lot on my religion, and I just want to make sure I got every base covered, like the rich young ruler that Brian talked about. I don't want to put the base of my dependence on you. I just want to make sure I'm okay, my religion and everything. And Jesus says, okay, you want to be okay? Lose your religion. It's not bringing about the results that you want. Religion or human attempts to meet God. You're in dire need of a spiritual transfusion, he says, of new life. See, don't you see, new birth, and I, I don't mean to, um, to harp on this, but it's so important. I want to make sure we understand this. It's not, uh, new birth is not, I've got an agenda. I need God to catch up to my agenda so I can be successful. That's not new birth. It's a whole new agenda. It's God saying, here's a new script for you. New birth is not, oh, I got this weak self-image, and I need God to build it up. Listen, Jesus didn't come to fix our weak identities. He came to give us a whole new identity in him, a whole new purpose, a whole new way of thinking. New birth literally means you're something else. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, talks about this. And let me just read a portion of what he says. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. And God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. and doesn't seem to make any sense. He's knocking walls down. He's kicking doors out. What on earth is he up to? Lewis says the explanation is he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. 
throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But Jesus is building a palace. He intends to come and live in that palace himself. The best religion can do, the best your efforts can do, is create a little cottage. Jesus wants to turn you into a palace. So I have a question for you. When it came to your physical birth, how many of you were born physically? (laughs) That's not a trick question. Come on. How much effort did you have in your physical birth? I mean, I was in the womb at one point. I don't remember it, but my mom tells me I was there. I didn't say, gosh, I need Italian genes. I want a good Italian nose. So I'm going to grow my nose, and now it's time to grow my digits. I had no part in my formation and birth. In utero, I was hooked up to an umbilical cord, and it was the life of another that created the life and DNA in me. And when the birth came, I had no part in that either. See, in Jesus' day, uh, we have five daughters. I was there for four of their births. And in the West, where my four daughters were born, thank God for medicine that tries to make it as pain-free as possible. And we had, I mean, I'm not going to speak. My wife obviously did the heavy lifting in all of our births. But, uh, you know, the labor with, with the use of medicine, it was, it was painful. But there was never once that I ever worried for my wife's life. In Jesus' day, that wasn't always the case. There was no epidural in the first century. There was no C-section. There was a high chance when a woman would give birth that she would die to give life to another. And when Nicodemus heard Jesus saying, you must be born again, he was saying, and what he heard was this, the only way you can have life in the kingdom of God it's through the pain and suffering, maybe even death of another, to birth you spiritually. You wouldn't understand it then, but as the story would go on, Nicodemus would come to full understanding what Jesus meant. See, I want you to know this. Jesus is saying, according to me, and what else matters but according to Jesus, Please hear me. As one author put it, Jesus is saying, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. Verse 7, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. How can this be, said Nicodemus? I don't understand. How could I have missed this? How could my whole life, I've tried to be good and tried to be perfect and obedient, and you're telling me that there's something beyond that, beyond my hyper-religious efforts. I was one of the 6,000, and then I made it to one of the 70, and I am the teacher in all of Israel. How did I miss this, Jesus? There's something beyond this? For the sake of time, we're going to jump out of this conversation, but it continued on, and it ends. Jump to John 7. Let's find out the next time we read of Nicodemus. John chapter 7. 
That was his face-to-face encounter. And he wouldn't see Jesus' face until the end of Jesus' life again. But let's jump in, John 7, verse 45. And you know the story. Over time, Jesus' popularity grows. We jumped over John 6, where it said the people, he was so popular, they wanted to make him king, John chapter 6. And the Pharisees, those 6,000, were seeing this, and they hated Jesus. And they said, he must die. And so there was a festival going on in Jerusalem. Jesus came down like a good Jew from Galilee, and he's celebrating the festival. And the Jews and the Pharisees said to the temple police, the Pharisee police, they had their own police force called the temple guard, go get him, go arrest him. And they're waiting in their high and holy palace for Jesus to be brought in. And that's where we pick up this story, John 7, verse 45. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, Where's Jesus? Why didn't you bring him in? They come back alone. And look at their response, verse 46. No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. Look where they go, verse 47. You mean he's deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. And then they asked a question. Remember, Nicodemus is there amongst this group. And they asked a question that made Nicodemus really nervous. Verse 48, look at it, everybody. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? At this point, Nicodemus gets a lump in his throat. Because as we look at the whole story arc of his life, and we'll finish it in a minute, there's a good chance he was starting to believe in him. And he saw the anger. He saw they wanted him dead. And if he were to go public, even with his core belief, listening to the teaching, that one-on-one interaction, you must be born again, he knew it would be brutal for his life. So with a lump in his throat, verse 50, Nicodemus raises his hand. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, who was one of their own number, we built that out, asked, "Uh, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? I'm taking a little step here, but I really believe that was Nicodemus's way of going, as the only one in this room who had the face-to-face conversation, I am just telling you, I am backing what these temple police are saying, no one's ever taught like this guy. And are we really gonna condemn a man? He's, He's standing... He just had a little core of faith, I mean, a little nub of faith, but it's all the faith he can muster up to be that public and that aligned. We should hear him out because something's happening within me. I think he might be onto something because I know all this religious activity isn't working. I can't get to the destination I was destined for. I need something else. And he said, I must be born again. Look at their response. They hit him with an ethnic slur. Galilee was the rural, poor, simple people, the unsophisticated people. And they reply, are you from Galilee too? It's like their peacock feathers come up, their intellect, their their pride. That's what religion does. It just makes you feel better looking down on the people who aren't as good as you. 
They're furious with Nicodemus. And then the tipping point. John 11, Lazarus is raised from the dead. John chapter 12, if you're taking notes, we're not going to go there, but verse 9 to 11, the Pharisees have had it. He must die and Lazarus must die too now because many are turning to faith in Christ because of Lazarus. And then you know the story. Jesus is arrested, the triumphal entry. Six illegal trials in one night. They take him to Pilate. Pilate interrogates Jesus. He finds him innocent, but out of fear of Rome and of the Jews, has Jesus beaten within an inch of his life, and then he's sentenced to be crucified. And Matthew says, in the midst of all that, Matthew chapter 27, verse 41 to 42, Matthew says, the Pharisees, the scribes, the ruling council, the same one we met in John 7, were watching the whole thing happen. And Nicodemus is watching this, and he's hearing the nails go in Jesus' hand, and Jesus praying for the people crucifying him. Father, if they knew they were killing the Son of God, they wouldn't do this, so please forgive them. And then he sees the whole thing take place, Golgotha. And then it dawns on Nicodemus, maybe. Something he said in John 3, that first initial encounter. We didn't read it originally. We're going to read it now. John 3, verse 14 to 15. Look on the screen. Jesus in that encounter said, Nicodemus, just as Moses was lifted up, this lifted up the snake in the wilderness, uh, he's, he knows Nicodemus knows a story. We don't really know that story. It's Numbers chapter 21. Israel had rebelled against God. Snakes had come into the camp. Moses prayed for the people. God said, put a snake on the pole and lift it up. It was a picture, what theologians call a type in the Old Testament for for, uh, casting the cross. And when the Israelites looked at the snake, they were completely healed. That's what's behind that. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He had no idea what he was talking about in John 3. But on the outskirts of the crucifixion, Nicodemus is going, oh my gosh, this is what he talked about. So that everyone, everyone say everyone. 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 Say it one more time. See, we say at our church, the good news has got to be good news for all, or it's not good news at all. Jesus is the most inclusive Savior. The doors are wide open for anyone to come to Christ. Christians are the only people, as one of our pastors says, who try to clean their fish before they catch them. Jesus says, come as you are. As a matter of fact, I'll take it one step further. God so loved the world. Jesus says, I love you just as you are. And I love you too much to keep you that way. But you'll never become the person I had in mind when I created you until you come to me as you are. So that everyone who, what's the next word? Not behaves. So that everyone who believes See, following Christ, coming to Christ, is not about good behavior. It's about right belief. Everyone who believes may have eternal life. My daughter went into the airport fully trusting a ticket that would get her nowhere. 
you got to have the right belief and the right uh, means to get into the kingdom of God. And what I'm saying to you, what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, he's the right means. And suddenly, I believe a light goes off. Something happened there. Turn to John 19. Let's wrap this up. Here's what happens before John 19. We know the story. While the rest of Jesus' followers fled, Nicodemus and another secret disciple, Joseph of Arimathea, realize, oh my gosh, this is who Jesus is. You do enter the kingdom, not through right behavior, but through right belief. And that was their Popeye moment. It's all they could stand, and they put their belief in Christ, and they go public at that point. We pick up the story in John 19, verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate, this, this is crazy. They killed this man. The disciples fled because they knew anyone who aligned with him might die too. And here come the elite into the, the, the Roman governor's office and align with that man, Jesus, for the potty of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple, an apprentice of Jesus. His faith was in Jesus. Look at this. But secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by who? Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds, taking Jesus' body. They wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This is in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified was a garden. And in the garden was what? See, this is the reason why Jesus wasn't thrown into, in his day, the, Ga the Valley of Gehenna, like every other person who was crucified. Because two men who had power in Jerusalem came to Pilate, and they had means and said, in essence, don't throw him in Gehenna. We followed this man. Let us put him in my tomb, Joseph said. They put him in a new tomb, which no one had ever been laid. And because it was a Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus where? There. There. Matthew, Mark record after they put him in there, they rolled the stone into place because Sabbath was coming. And before sundown, this all had to be done. They sealed the tomb and left. With all their questions about Jesus, one thing was for certain. He was dead. He was mummified in 75 pounds of grave clothes. And they had no hope of ever seeing him alive again. We'll build that out tomorrow night. But it was their faith. This is what I want to hold tonight. It was their faith. It was their concern for the body of Jesus that paved the way for first century Christians and generations of Christians afterwards to have our firm belief. And Christianity rests on this. If you don't identify as a follower of Christ, I would humbly offer you wrestle with the claims of Christ and this question. Did he rise from the dead? Because three days later, Women didn't go into the Valley of Gehenna rummaging through the smoke and the fire, the feral dogs and the rats looking for bones. Three days later, they went to a specific place that they knew Jesus was specifically laid and that specific tomb was empty. See, if they hadn't taken care of the body, he'd be thrown in the garbage dump 
and, and he would have just risen out of Gehenna. The resurrection was going to happen whether it was in a tomb or not. There's the valley today. He would have risen out of Gehenna, shaken off the dust and the scars and the rat bites and the nail scars or whatever. And that would have been uh, remarkable, but it would have been believable. People could have said, well, you were never dead or this or that. But because there was a tomb and a stone and a Roman guard around it, a matter of days later, the very people who fled for fear of their lives ran through the city and said, he's alive. The tomb is empty. And our faith in Christ, if you don't identify as a follower of Christ, you need to know this. If you do, you need to know this. Our faith in Christ doesn't rest on a book. This is the living word of God, but for 300 years, we didn't have this, the first 300 years of our church, and the church exploded. Our faith in Christ doesn't rest on the teachings of Jesus, as good as they are, because when Jesus was crucified, his followers scattered. The Jesus thing was over. Our faith in Christ rests on a historical event that validates every claim Jesus ever made. You read the book of Acts. You read the sermons in the book of Acts. Their sermons were all at their core this. He's alive. He rose from the dead. We can't deny that he was dead and he came back to life and we have new life in him. It's almost as if we're born again. Find it interesting as we close that the man who said you must be born again to, who heard Jesus say you must be born again, is the man who paved the way for generations of believers to know with certainty that Jesus died and rose again. So as we close, two takeaways. If you identify as a follower of Christ, I just want you to see in almost every story you've heard in the morning and at night, there is so much more than meets the eye to our obedience and our allegiance to Jesus. If you identify as a follower of Christ, I want you to know that Christ invites us to obedience because it is the best way to life, not just for us, but for the generations that follow us. I am convinced Nicodemus had no idea, Joseph had no idea when they laid him in the tomb that that one act, they would play a pivotal part in the resurrection story. And over 2,000 years later, or almost 2,000 years later, in the West, thousands of miles from that tomb, people would be gathered talking about them and their allegiance. I just want to say this, obedience matters so much. Ruth and Boaz, Monday morning, had no idea their obedience meant eventually through their loins, the lineage, David and Jesus. We just never know. And I just want to encourage you in obedience. If you don't identify as a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to invite you tonight with the words of Jesus. His words were this, you must be born anew. Maybe with my daughter's story, you identify with Elizabeth. You're helpless to get to a destination that you long to be at. 
that question of questions you've been asking. You've made a mistake. You just haven't bought a ticket for the wrong day. You've hooked your life up to the wrong um, functional saviors that you thought were functional, and they're just, you fell short. You thought career would satisfy, or you thought that relationship would satisfy. You thought even being religious would satisfy. Maybe like my daughter, you need the, you realize tonight spiritually, I need someone to step in and give me a brand new start. The offer on the table, my friends, not just for tonight, but for every night of your life if you put off that decision. Jesus is tapping you on the shoulder like the man tapped my daughter and said, I'll take you, I'll get you where you need to go. And you're gonna go on my account because you're bankrupting yours. So as we close in prayer, I'm going to give you the opportunity, and I'd invite everyone, if you have your field guide, to turn to the very back page. I'm going to give us an opportunity to receive Christ, to put our faith in Christ, to say, I'm no longer trusting in my efforts. I'm no longer trusting you to be a supplement to my life. Jesus, I'm asking you to give me a brand new start. Now, I know most, many people in this room have already done this. Many people out in the paddock have already done this. But for almost 120 years, this camp has rested on decisions like this. Brand new starts. It is the hope for all of us that if you don't know Christ, that tonight would be your night. That you yield your life to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Jesus, I thank you so much for your patience your kindness with Nicodemus. It gives me hope, and I can testify you have been that way with me time and time again. I thank you so much that you're a safe Savior. You promised that a bruised reed you wouldn't break and a smoldering wick you wouldn't snuff out. There's some of us in this room, we're bruised and we're smoldering and We just have a nub of faith, but we're turning to you and asking that you would meet us there. For those of us who identify as a follower of Christ, Lord, reveal to us, give us the core conviction. We need your grace. We have heard it time and time again, morning and night, that our allegiance to you matters so much more than what we see in the here and now. Would you build in us a gracious conviction to align with you, to trust you, to believe you in the fences, as Brian called them, that you've set up for our lives. Father, I pray for those in this room who don't identify as a follower of Christ, and I am so thankful that they're here. Thank you for giving them the courage and the means and the breath for sustaining their life so they could hear this good news once again or for the first time. And we're trusting in your Holy Spirit to draw people. That's your job. Stepping out of the prayer, and I want to speak to us tonight. If that's you, these words aren't magical. Prayer won't save you. This is Jesus who's reaching out his hand to you and saying, I'm the only one who can take you home. And I'm not just talking about heaven. That matters. I mean, eternity is way much longer than this life here on earth. 
But he's saying to you, I want to give you life now. Eternal life starts now. I want to give you a new operating system now. I want to implant in you a whole new lens and power and strength now. This is just a suggested prayer, and you can make my words your words. And if this is you, you can say this to God. And if you've said this before, you can do what uh, I've done many times in my marriage, and that's this. I'd say I do all over again. Repeat these with me in your heart. Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin, for my brokenness. Tonight, I'm opening the door of my life. Step in as my rescuer. Step in to take me where I can't go on my own. I'm not asking for a supplement. I'm asking for a whole life change. And then you be my master. You call the shots. I thank you on your word that you forgive my sin completely. Every sin I've committed and every sin I will commit. My whole life has been exchanged with your life, Jesus. You're giving me eternal life. You call the shots. Make me the person you want me to be. It's a holy moment. I'm just going to take one more of them. And your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. If you prayed that prayer, I want to pray for you. Not sheepishly, but boldly, I'd ask you just raise your hand. If you prayed that prayer, invited Christ in your life, just raise it up. Praise God. Just raise it up. I'm not going to embarrass you, but I just want you to raise it up to testify. And God are good. Father, for new life that's begun tonight, for new life that began a while ago, your word says you began something, you will complete it. I commit my brothers and sisters to you, all of us, to function as kingdom people, to your glory and for the good of our neighbors and friends and family and us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. A sweet night. Hey, I'll be here as we break and as we close. The band's going to sing one more song, but I'd invite you to go public tonight. If you trusted Christ with whoever you brought here, tell somebody about that. If, if you don't have somebody, I'll, I'll be here and talk to you about that. We want to start you growing in that relationship with Christ. Let's sing and worship God.